0: This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode nine of Alert and Oriented. Thanks for coming back and listening. We are excited to present another case for you guys. Things have been pretty busy, but we're excited to be here again. We have two new discussants with us. I'll let them introduce themselves.
1: I'm Megan, I'm a third-year student at Rush, about a third of the way through my third year, um, so still getting the hang of things, but I'm excited to be here today.
2: I'm Antonio, I'm a fourth-year student at Rush, uh, going into internal medicine. Excited to work on
0: this case. How are how's it feel to be done with applications, Antonio?
2: It's it feels nice. <laughs> As I said now you have the struggle of
0: scheduling them. Yeah. And Dr. Abrams is here with us.
3: Yeah, great to see you guys. I uh you're getting my sympathy with the with, with the uh well you're through the application process. Now you're on the you're on the uh you know interview interview process. I I know Kevin, you have your first interview tomorrow.
0: I do. Tomorrow morning. Got to squeeze this episode in though, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> it happens so fast.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Just trying to enjoy the process as much as I can. All right guys, you ready to good, dive good in? Good luck
3: to the two of you guys.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Good it. luck with your clerkships.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I need it. All
0: right. We have a case of a 33-year-old African-American male who presented with complaints of progressive dyspnea on exertion, a nonproductive cough, night sweats, and a 30-pound weight loss over the preceding three months.
1: All right. I can start. So starting just with the dyspnea on exertion, um, just kind of tackling that you always wanna break it down into the different organ systems. Um, so it could be an issue with the lungs, could it be an issue with the heart, um, could be something hematologic like anemia. Um, but when you add the cough on top of that, it definitely kind of localizes more to a lung pathology. Um, but then adding in the night sweats and the weight loss, those are kind of red flags that we usually ask a lot of patients. Um, so the fact that he does have those kind of points to the fact that there's something more systemic going on. And this is obviously more of like a subacute process um, So all the usual like pneumonia infections, I feel like are probably less likely here just because it's been going on for so long.
2: Agreed. And then night sweats and 30-pound weight loss is more concerning for malignancy. Um, And a nonproductive cough makes me, like you said, think less of an infection.
0: Now I'm just reflecting already, Megan, you're what, months into your M3 year and you just broke down that differential so well, like dyspnea on exertion, tying in how it could be cardiac, how it could be something like anemia, not just focusing on it being a lung pathology, but then using the info that there's some kind of non-productive cough in the background and using that to help localize. Like you said, is I think you're already off to such a strong start for your, your, your clerkship years. And I can't wait to see where things go for you. You guys ready for the next aliquot? So we got some past history here. His past history was significant for morbid obesity, hypertension, tobacco use, right-sided congestive heart failure and then obstructive sleep apnea.
2: Yeah. Um, especially with the tobacco use. And like I was saying, concern for malignancy with this 30 pound weight loss and these night sweats. Um, he does have that history of tobacco use. And then also thinking of uh, congestive heart failure, like Megan said, cardiac he's got the risk factor of obesity and hypertension as well.
1: Um, Yeah, just adding to that, the fact that it's like the right-sided heart failure, I think if it was hypertension related, you kind of expect to see more of like a left-sided, but with the right side, then the sleep apnea kind of points more towards maybe like a pulmonary picture and you can get pulmonary hypertension with that. Um, And just the obesity, you kind of have this like chronic inflammatory state. So I think it kind of increases the likelihood of just a lot of those inflammatory disorders.
0: You guys made some great points there. Uh, I think focusing on that right-sided aspect of heart failure and thinking about what could cause that, can help narrow our thinking. I'm wondering what you guys would be looking for on physical exam uh, and someone you know that has right-sided chest or congestive heart failure.
1: Um, So now you see more of like the volume overload um, just like with the JVD and the lower extremity edema um, is more common when you're looking at the right-sided heart failure. Um, A lot of times right-sided heart failure is caused by left-sided heart failure though. Um, So like the case that they do have that you could expect to see some pulmonary findings, pulmonary edema, crackles on exam, stuff like that.
0: What do you think about the obstructive sleep apnea? How are you framing that in your representation of the problem?
1: Uh, Given the morbid obesity, I'd say that's probably the most likely, Um, but I guess you can't really exclude something like underlying structural cause that's causing it.
3: Uh, Again, one of the things I like that you said earlier was sort of defining this on some sort of a time course, right? Because at least I think that the time course really is so helpful in starting to sort through sort through how you go about making a diagnosis. And it's such an important part of the diagnostic process and sort of putting something like this into that, you know, acute, subacute, chronic. And and I realize, you know, for very few diseases, do we really, you know, set those time limits, right. But, but thinking about it that way and thinking about it as okay, this is a potentially a subacute to chronic process that's going on in this person.
0: Tempo, tempo, tempo. All right, let's go to Alquad 3. So a little bit more additional history. So 10 months earlier, a diagnosis of pulmonary embolus was made when he presented to a neighboring hospital with shortness of breath, but no confirmatory testing was done because of how overweight he was. He was treated with warfarin for three months.
2: Again, this is pointing towards, you know, with the chronic obesity, uh, morbid obesity, thinking of more so, of like, like we said, inflammation, um, depending on what their physical activity is, thinking of like DBT. Um, uh, but again, this is kind of more so pointing against the infection picture that we were kind of talking about earlier and more so like a chronic, um, subacute condition, like medical saying.
1: So just to clarify, they don't know for sure that it was a PE. They're just su- suspecting that as a PE. Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, so yeah, in a younger guy, um, with no kind of like underlying history of any sort of like malignancy or anything that would make him hypercoagulable. I think that is kind of a red flag. Um, obviously you need more information about like his activity level, all the, any recent travel, um, smoking, I think he is a smoker. Um, but yeah, just kind of asking all those screening questions for a DVT, um, to kind of figure out if this is like provoked unprovoked, um, and then kind of tailoring your workout based on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great thinking. And you know, it's not unheard of, but this guy's 33 and having a blood clot pulmonary embolus at 33 is definitely a red flag that should raise our, you know, attention towards something.
3: Disclaimer in here. Also, I I told you guys, this is an old case. And so I would say this case was around the time that CT, you know, a chest CT angiogram was just coming into, was just coming into being. And so uh, I, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that.
0: For aliquot four, six months after he was diagnosed with the presumptive PE, a CT scan of his chest showed significant hyalurid mediastinal with multiple lung nodules, including at least one that was cavitating. Basic labs, an autoimmune panel, ACE level, and PFTs were normal. He didn't return for four months, and that's when he presented to the pulmonary clinic with the complaints I initially presented to you guys.
2: So you have the multiple lung nodules concerning um, for malignancy, and then also cavitating ones. I mean, potentially TB. That's like a less likely, but always got to keep it on your differential just in case, especially with the night sweats as well.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, other things kind of like sarcoid, I think maybe like histo or blasto can maybe give you some of like the hilar, um mediastinal adenopathy as well. Um, I know you'd probably expect the ACE level to be up um, with sarcoid, but I don't know if that's something that can like definitively rule it out.
0: Good thoughts. And I like how you both kind of touched on what I kind of contribute to my illness script for cavitating and then hilar adenopathy, you know, fungal infections, malignancy, sure bacterial infections, and then also autoimmune processes. And Megan mentioned if she was suspicious for something like sarcoid, you know, you would expect an ACE level to be high, but you, you raise a good point. You don't, you're questioning, you know, the sensitivity and or specificity of that. Um, but just keeping that in mind is important always. Are you surprised the labs are fine?
1: I don't know. I guess not super surprised. Um, if it's something that's kind of been going on for a couple of months, I guess you don't always expect there to be some kind of like huge lab or abnormality that's kind of sticking out at you. Know? But yeah, I guess it doesn't really change anything too much.
2: Right. And since we weren't like worried as much about like an acute infection, I mean like white count and it's not as relevant um, because we're not too concerned. So I'm not surprised that it's basic labs are kind of the same.
0: All right. so you're on your sub eye. What are you, what are you doing next for this guy?
2: This guy, He had a CT. So probably wouldn't repeat that unless it was like a year out. I mean, these, these pulmonary nodules are concerning. and probably want to biopsy them and get pulm involved and, and see what these, uh, these nodules actually are if they're concerning for malignancy or something else like sarcoid.
3: So, so tissue's probably-
0: the issue for you? Yeah.
3: <laughs> One of the things that I think of in cases like this is, is to look at the thing that's the most unusual, right? So there's a lot of things going on in this case, potentially, this person has a number of things that are happening. And, and I look at this and I say, so what's the most unusual thing that, that, that I see on this, Um, and I, listen, we could all be drawn to something different as I, as we look at the case, but, but to me, there's something that sort of stands out and and, and says, okay, well, at least I can start wrapping my, my brain around, around this piece. And then working back Because remember, there's a lot of things going on. This person's had a PE before this person has all these systemic symptoms they've got. So they've all these, all these things rolling around and, and I say, okay, I got to grab onto something. So something that happens maybe least commonly, Right. And that might be the piece to at least start to hang on to.
1: Yeah, I think for me, the cavitary lung lesion kind of sticks out the most. I don't think there's too many things, at least that would cause um, a lesion to cavitate. So I think that's something I would kind of go for.
2: And also with the multiple lung nodules, you could also be concerned about um, cancer coming from somewhere else, like colon cancer. I mean, he's 33, so probably not, but maybe he's scanning like an abdomen pelvis CT and and seeing if it's it's, um, kind of spread to the lungs, since the lungs are a common spot.
0: Antonio, so I'm going to challenge you here. Uh, Megan yeah. and I were actually on a session with our friends, the Clinical Problem Solvers, on Sunday that had a case with some interesting lung findings, and actually oh. walked through a differential based on the distribution of findings. Okay. No pressure, but yeah, <laughs> with distribution in mind, how would you? What kind of patterns do you know of, and what do they make you think of?
2: I guess for like peripheral ground glass opacities, makes me think something like COVID you know, upper lobe makes me think more so of like TB and depending on, I mean, not this patient specifically, but if it was an older patient and it was, it was a cavitary um, nodule and and it was something, someone that you're concerned for aspiration and like the lower lobe or middle lobe I'm kind of thinking of that pathway.
0: What if, uh, what about multifocal kind of all over the lung?
2: Um, like an atypical pneumonia, if you're thinking of something like that.
0: Hey, yeah, you mentioned some really good things and some good uh, problems. Dr. Abrams, you got anything to add to that? You no, know, the only thing I'll say is,
3: you know, I, I've, I've heard that discussion before, and then I've yeah. actually gone looking, trying to find something that actually explains it or tells me about it. And I, maybe you, maybe the two of you guys have found it. I have actually not found it. I mean, I thought when I've heard it before, I'm, it's so interesting. And then I'm like, okay, who made it up? I don't know.
0: I'm going to, I'll pull something up and maybe we can work through there, it. Okay.
3: You. I figured you'd have a schema. I was going to ask you for a schema <laughs> a few minutes ago,
0: anyhow. So the schema is kind of based on the distribution being either random, perilymphatic, or central lobular. So I think my understanding is random is associated with hematogenous processes. So stuff traveling in the blood. Okay. Central lobular is the plumbing directly involved with the lungs. So it's, it must be like through inhaled particles, viruses, you know, respiratory tract infections, Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned like aspiration, you said very specifically like middle, lower lobe. That's because of what we know of the lung anatomy, right? Like we know that mm-hmm. right main stem is going that way. And then the interesting one I think was the perilymphatic distribution and how they associate that with being inflammatory stuff or malignant processes that aren't spreading hematogenously but using the lymphatic system. Yeah.
3: Like I say, Kevin, I I've, I've looked for the paper. They got this from, I've heard them describe it. and I'm like, I it sounds great. I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You guys ready for aliquot five? Yep. Mm-hmm. So on physical exam, he had a temperature of 99.6, respiratory rate was 22. Blood pressure was 110 over 80. He was saturating 97% on room air. His BMI was 48.7. There was no JVD Lung exam revealed by crackles, heart sounds were distant, normal S1, S2, no murmurs. The rest of his physical exam was unremarkable.
2: Yeah, this doesn't give you too much. I mean, other than by crackles, I would think of maybe like some heart failure, um, but no JVD. So it's not extensive. He has no pitting edema. It it doesn't give you too much. But other than the by crackles would maybe make me think of heart failure, but not other signs are really pointing too much that way.
1: Yeah, the only other thing that stuck out to me, um, the distant heart sounds had me think of maybe like a pericardial effusion. Um, If we are worried about malignancy, it could be like a malignant effusion um, or even something autoimmune could cause an effusion. Um, So sometimes with patients that um, are obese, I think the heart sounds can kind of sound distant anyways, just because of the obesity. Um, But Mm -hmm. with the crackles and the distant heart sounds, I think an effusion is something that kind of needs to be evaluated.
0: I think those are really good lines of reasoning. And I like how you kept in mind what it might be, but also what you know about the patient already and how that might affect physical exam findings. and. It's, it's popular in our documentation, right? Like unable to access or did not visualize due to body habitus. Right. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind is important, knowing that we now have a BMI to characterize this person's obesity, but like Antonio said, not a particularly helpful physical exam. I like to ask this of our discussants, sick or not sick?
2: Not too worried. I mean, he might be sick, but like in, in the acute phase, no.
0: Yeah. You yeah, feel like think, you have the time to kind of think through things here. You're not worrying about, you know, grabbing the, yeah. getting ready to intubate this person or starting them. Right. Yep.
2: Especially on room air, 97% is making me less worried about it, even with the crackles.
1: No, I was just going to say his blood pressure, I mean, 110 over 80 isn't super low, but um, for a guy his size, I think you would expect it to be a lot higher than that. Maybe for most people, it's not hypotensive, but for him it could be like a relative hypotension. So just something to keep in mind. Good,
3: good point. point. The other thing I want to say is, you know, really your physical exam is the first diagnostic test that you really do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and again, as you guys say, it's sometimes certainly in people who are, you know, who are, who are markedly obese, it's tough to do. We're just not, we're not good at it. I say that. Mm -hmm. And therefore the value you get out of it, you know, might be less. And, you know, if you really think about this in a sort of a strict sort of, you know, EBM sort of diagnostic testing thing The the likelihood ratio associated with this guy's physical exam is, is, is pretty close to, it's pretty close to one.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know this, we've said it wasn't all that helpful, but what's your differential looking like now, guys?
2: Still thinking of malignancy, potentially heart failure, exacerbation, but less likely because of uh, there's no need for oxygen requirement and no GVD, no pitting edema. It might, I mean, it might just be the start of it, but less likely. So, but more so malignancy.
1: Yeah. Malignancy. I think TB is still on the differential and then well, now still other kind of inflammatory conditions like sarcoid and things like that. Mm.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's go to the next aliquot. CMP normal CBC was only remarkable for a white count of 11.2. The ACE level now upon recheck was slightly elevated. They did a PPD that was negative and his sputum smears were negative for acid fast bacilli. They did repeat that CT and showed that the dominant cavitary lesion had increased in size, and then there are now two new cavitary lesions. The lymphadenopathy has persisted, and there's numerous reticular nodular densities.
1: There's clearly something going on in the chest here, and something that's kind of changing seems to be pretty rapidly. And um, these new cavitary lesions—it's obviously progressing pretty quickly. Um, So I'm not entirely sure what it is. I don't think it really fits with the malignancy. The TB test be negative. It doesn't really fit with that either. Um, I don't know a lot about ACE levels. I keep thinking sarcoid when I see that. And now that it's a little elevated, I guess that's still in my mind. I don't know if like basilicosis and borreliosis and all those diseases that I learned a while ago and kind of forgot about. um, I don't know if those kind of paint this picture either. Um, But yeah, I'm not entirely sure right now.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure. I'm not too, too familiar with ACE levels other than for sarcoid. I'm not sure if like, if it's something like a D-dimer where if there's inflammation, you could have like a false positive or, you know, falsely elevated ACE level. Um, but now that he's got a white count that's increasing and an ACE level, that's now elevated <sighs> points you towards some kind of inflama- inflammatory process going on, unless so like rapidly spreading malignancy. It's not as common.
0: So we have new cavitary lesions. Right. And we, we talked earlier about how that's kind of the weirdest finding that we can kind of set right. it on. Just keeping in mind his overall picture and then framing it with these new cavitary lesions, does that point towards one thing more than another?
2: I mean, the TVs kind of almost ruled out with the sputum. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was the, the one that I was uh, going towards.
0: What's your representation uh, for uh, TB mimickers? That's a great question.
2: I yeah. mean, like we were talking about like histo um but again not as concerned it doesn't have like a fever I- i'm just not as concerned from like an infection standpoint
1: yeah, i know klebsiella is something that likes to cavitate um that can look like TB. i don't know about like um like aspergillomas or something like that um getting a little esoteric here but yeah, yeah i'm not totally sure
0: i no, i i think definitely aspergilloma was something that didn't initially come to my mind, but that's a, a great thing to bring up. And then Klebsiella pneumonia absolutely can cause cavitary lesions. I don't think his picture kind of points towards that because someone with Klebsiella pneumonia who's having cavitating lesions is going to be pretty sick. What you did bring up though, the pneumoconiosis was interesting and they could certainly present you know, with findings like these. And I think in the right you know, occupational exposure, environmental exposure history, that those, are, those would be worth throwing on the differential and considering. Why don't you guys tell me what your next steps would be and then what you're most suspicious of at this point?
2: Yeah, I think I'm still going to stick with the biopsy because I want to know what's, what's in these lesions. And I think that's pretty much going to be the only confirmatory thing that I can think of as of now, um, which is really going to show me if this is like an infectious cause or a pneumoconiosis, like one of the, one of the pneumoconioses or something like that. Um, and just seeing the pathology from the biopsy. So I'd really want
1: to stick to the biopsy. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm not sure in terms of the testing for like a lot of the Um, I don't know if we can get more sputum culture. I know he doesn't really have a productive cough and the sputum cultures aren't always like the best test to get anyways. Um, so I think that kind of going right to the source and taking the tissue and seeing what's there might be our best bet.
0: All right, let's go to the next aliquot. So bronchial lavage, smear and culture were negative for AFB and fungi. A transbronchial biopsy revealed non-caseating granulomas. Prednisone treatment was started. A repeat chest four months later showed a disappearance of all cavitary lesions and a decrease in size of the mediastinal adenopathy and nodular lesions. The patient was now completely asymptomatic. He noted resolution of all his symptoms. Megan was right. Let's paint the picture. What are you guys, what are your reflections? Go ahead, Megan.
1: Um, So yeah, he's this 33-year-old guy, um, history of morbid obesity, hypertension, right heart failure, sleep apnea. Um, coming in with the shortness of breath. That was his chief complaint. Okay. Um, So yeah, history, a little concerning for like PE's in the past. Um, Exam wise, nothing really focal except for these lung crackles. Um, And then his labs only notable really for this slightly elevated ACE level Um, on biopsy. We saw these non-caseating granulomas um, and all the TB workup was totally negative Um, and complete resolution in his symptoms with prednisone. Um, So yeah, pointing to an inflammatory process, I think sarcoid really good response to steroids, which is great.
0: That was a great problem representation. I think you highlighted all the salient features and, you know, if I hadn't heard anything about this case and that's all you told me, I feel like I knew exactly how you were thinking throughout. Dr. Abrams, anything you want to add at this point? Yeah, I want to, first of all, I want to, I, I want to tell you guys what a great job
3: you did talking through this. Um, and, and I, I want to say I, although it was a long time ago, I, I, I actually remember going through this case. Um, because as I, as I said this is, this, this is, this is something I saw a number of years ago. Um, and, and when I reflect back on the differential diagnosis in this case, it, it does come down to, and I, I don't know, Kevin, maybe we should come up with a schema for cavitary lung lesions Yeah, because, because there are a, a number of more things that actually cavitate and, and, and actually chronic pulmonary emboli can cavitate at times. Mm. And and actually one of the things that doesn't cavitate very much is actually sarcoidosis. Mm, And, and so to me, that's what made this case in my mind really interesting is that it is an unusual. And I think you got some, you got a slide after there. It's an unusual cavitating it's an unusual cavitating disease, certainly with everything else, without the cavities, you know, you come, Oh, this is probably sarcoid, but you guys were right. I mean, it, you have to go through that entire differential diagnosis and it's the TB and the TB mimickers and it's the, you know, inflammatory diseases. And it really we could go through almost every inflammatory disease and say, it could have been this, it could have been rheumatoid arthritis, and it could have been this one. It could have been that one. And of course, obviously there's the malignancy piece that, that, that goes through this also. And and so it was the funny cavitator that actually turned out to be the answer in this case.
0: I like that. <laughs> so you guys were right. It was uh, diagnosed with sarcoidosis. You guys mentioned that pretty early and had that on your mind throughout each aliquot and kind of used information to help support your thinking. So that was, great job, guys. It's always exciting to hear how you reason. Antonio's, we're almost done with medical school and we're soon to be interns and in Megan's just kicking off her third year and already reasoned so well. It's, yeah. it's so cool to see.
3: Yeah.
1: I was just going to ask about the pulmonary embolism. Is there a good way to kind of tie that into everything or?
3: I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think he, okay. you're, you were right. Who knows if he even had a pulmonary embolism yeah. at that time. It was, it was an empiric diagnosis and, uh, you
0: know, again, he was treated and then treatment was stopped. Okay. So sarcoid, it's a relatively common disease, usually has an insidious onset, a benign course, and the diagnosis is made by exclusion. Um, patients can present with complaints of cough, dyspnea, chest pain. Chest x-ray will typically show bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy and or pulmonary interstitial infiltrates. And like Dr. Abrams said, cavitary lesions are extremely rare and thought to occur in only maybe one to three percent of all cases. So therefore sarcoid patients with cavitary lesions may be easily misdiagnosed and you guys navigated through some of those other causes. So while the most common differential diagnosis for cavitary, pulmonary lesions is neoplastic, infectious, autoimmune, and pulmonary infarct secondary to septic or PE, gotta keep sarcoid in mind. So in order to diagnose these cavitary lesions, cultures for AFB and fungi should be negative to rule those out. And then the hallmark finding is made on pathological diagnosis, showing that non-caseating granuloma. Cavitary lesions may develop at any time during the course of this disease, as seen with the patient. Cavitary sarcoid may respond to steroids both clinically and radiologically, which was fortunately the case for this patient. So keeping the diagnosis in mind can avoid a delay in administering medication that could potentially resolve symptoms and findings completely. Sarcoidosis is a disease that's notorious for easily finding its way onto many differentials. It is a multi-system granulomatous disorder that's really poorly understood, but thought to be a manifestation of... T cells and activated macrophages that accumulate and lead to the formation of granulomas. Sarcoidosis is really a chameleon-like disease. It's a great mimicker of so many other different things and it's so multi-systemic that virtually any organ system has been associated as being involved. My illness script for sarcoidosis really centers around clinical manifestations distributed amongst five of the organ systems, primarily involving the lungs, presenting as bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy, can ultimately progress to fibrosis and later manifest in pulmonary hypertension. There's various cutaneous associations that can include nonspecific rashes, erythema nodosum, and lupus pernio. There are ocular findings, interestingly, such as anterior uveitis. There's the notorious neurosarcoidosis that is a challenging diagnosis to make and often overlooked, but can present with cranial nerve palsies. Non specific headache, even seizures. And an additional consideration is cardiac sarcoidosis or involvement of the myocardium with granulomatous inflammation that can present as cardiomyopathies or various arrhythmias, such as a heart block. There are some other findings that we think of when we're trying to make the diagnosis of sarcoidosis, and one being hypercalcemia. It could be an elevated angiotensive converting enzyme, elevated IL 2 receptor. Inflammatory marker elevations, such as CRP-ESR, and then elevated amyloid A. fdg PET ct is actually the most effective imaging modality we can use to diagnose sarcoidosis and kind of characterize how multisystemic it truly is because it shows sites of specific tissue inflammation. But biopsy showing non-caseating granulomas is really the mainstay in diagnosis. Treatment is primarily expert opinion, and first line centers around glucocorticoids, But it's well known that prolonged use and increasing doses are really associated with some adverse effects. There has been a shift to use glucocorticoid sparing therapies such as methotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate, and then incorporating some of the biologic treatments that we have such as infliximab and adalimumab. I also wanted to mention that hydroxychloroquine has been associated as a successful treatment in neurosarcoidosis and cases with hypercalcemia and cutaneous manifestations treatment guidelines are continuing to evolve and move towards a more personalized approach.
3: Certainly can say a few things about, about this. And, you know, I always start with the, okay, who are the famous people who have sarcoidosis and, uh, and, and you guys probably know, I mean, in the last couple of years or now it's longer than that. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of awareness that's been drawn to this because of certain people who've died of sarcoidosis and, and the ones that people You know, hear about I think Bernie Mac, the comedian. He ultimately died of sarcoidosis, and I think Reggie Reggie White was the was the NFL player. Uh, He was I think he was in his 40s when he died of sarcoidosis. The the two that are sort of sitting out there, and so these are really historical. They're historical people that people speculate may have died of sarcoidosis, had it or died. One of them was actually Shakespeare, and so there's a famous picture of Shakespeare out there that you know, people have looked at and said, well, if you look at his, you know, I think it's his left eye, his left eye had a lesion that was suggestive that he may have had sarcoidosis. But but probably the most famous of all the people who, who are, you know, speculated to dive this is actually Beethoven. And Beethoven actually had an, is another person who actually had an autopsy although his autopsy was done in the 1700s and there were no microscopes done at that time and there's at least a number of papers out there that 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 seem to indicate that the most likely cause of his death and and, and the likely cause of his of his deafness was sarcoidosis although more the more recent sort of speculation is actually that he died of Whipple's disease oh, and, and that would be a, that'd oh, be a really wow. <laughs> hard one to prove so I, I guess I'll stick with with the fact that Beethoven had sarcoidosis and, and that's what ultimately caused his death.
0: Wow, I didn't know any of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no like, Some great history.
0: You're just mentioning Whipple disease. Maybe it would have been hard to diagnose then, and it still is now. There's a patient on our Heme service, and we're basically ruling out the entire kitchen sink of potential diagnoses. And then once that's done, and ID was like, maybe then we can consider uh, investigating for Whipple's disease. <laughs> and Dr. Abrams, I think you definitely coined the the title of this episode with the funny cavitator. I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming on and discussing and showing off your clinical reasoning. I hope you had fun and that everyone listening enjoyed the case.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. That was awesome.
0: Yeah,
2: thanks for having us. Got to learn
3: too. Uh, you guys were, fa- as usual, you guys were just, just fabulous.
0: Thanks again for listening. Person, time and place. See you next time.